Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Andy McLeod, and he brought with him a wonderful little history lesson on fingerstyle guitar. So this will be a bit of a departure from your standard Get Up in the Cool episode, which I always welcome because this is a weekly show and I don't need to feature 50 different old-time fiddlers a year. Let's mix it up a little bit. Stick around afterwards and I'll tell you where to find more of Andy's music and how to support Get Up in the Cool and get cool rewards for doing so. But first, here's my jam and interview with Andy McLeod. Enjoy! West Coast Blues. The West Coast Blues. Andy McLeod, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Thank you. Nice to be here. We've been uh, trying to do this for a while now. It's true, yeah. You, um, sometime last year, told me that you wanted to do an episode that sort of spanned the history of the kind of guitar playing that you do. Right, and right. there's a few different names for it. Yeah, a yeah. A few different genres. Uh, right. So this is going to be like... Hopefully a little bit of an edutainment episode. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For the scholars out there. Yeah. Very good. Um, yeah. I, so I think that part of traditional music and the old time music that we play is this sort of ragtime and New Orleans and like Georgia music, even though so much of the festival music is focused on, you know, guitar, fiddle, banjo. Yeah. So... On records with Uncle Dave Macon, you know, a, a well-loved banjo player, uh, he had a backup guitar player, Sam McGee, who recorded, you know, on on old-time records with him doing solo guitar. So I've always thought it was cool that, you know, as part of that fiddle music tradition, there's this fingerstyle guitar emulating piano and, yeah. like, duet instrument, like, full bands at some so what do you mean emulating piano? So that's where it started. The earliest, like, what they call... Well, it later became Piedmont style, but the beginning of fingerstyle guitar is ragtime guitar. Well, I can't say that, because I guess, you know, there's classical and all sorts of stuff before that, but <laughs> for the purposes of this discussion. <laughs> um, 
So like it gets so much the thumb on rhythm and the and the you know index finger and middle finger on melody is basically yeah. the basis of what we're, we're talking of what people call fingerstyle guitar. Yeah. So like the ragtime guitar players were were just emulating the piano players of the day and gotcha. the and the jazz like of the day the ragtime yep. era. So um, that's where it started, and then people started doing country blues and what became later known as country blues and Piedmont blues, which is, has that same basis where your thumb is doing the rhythm and your fingers are doing the melody, but it sort of drifted away from jazz and became its own thing. Yeah. Why do you, do you hear much of this at uh, old time festivals? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's people who play country blues and who play ragtime it's sort of niche and weird. <laughs> yeah. It's its own little world. Mostly I feel like that <laughs> the style uh that style of playing is something I hear between tunes. Exactly. That the guitarist is Noodle, like, hey, noodling. Yeah. I do this. <laughs> and totally. then we kind of take a break and they're like, All right, let's play a real tune. Yeah, That's like right. the vibe of it. Right. But like I wonder if if that has anything to do with um the non-collaborative nature yeah, of the it's, music. Yeah, it, it definitely in the later years, especially when, like with John Fahey, who we'll, we'll yeah. talk about later, like the, the people who took it into this performative direction where it's just you doing instrumental solo guitar, you know. But in uh, back in the 20s and 30s and stuff, they were, some of this was being played for dancers. Like there's, yeah. there's square dances that were just two guitars, you know, there's like huh. jazz, there's like country and swing bands that are led by, or led by a guitar player and then backed by another guitar player. So you're saying this was like a jam I think tradition. So, yeah. I mean, it, there's, there's plenty of recordings that feature, you know, fingerstyle guitar with backup. And huh. th- there's a, one of the people we're going to talk about, Sylvester Weaver, he played with a jazz musician and singer sarah carter and he backed her up on guitar and ap uh ap carter like kind of you know played in that style and mother maybell even though she had her own carter scratch she's doing the same using both yeah limbs to create both rhythm and melody so it's part of the diaspora no yeah <laughs> <laughs> can't apply that word but yeah sort of part of the culture huh yeah how did you how did you find so I I heard uh, my a friend of mine gave me a Jack Rose CD who is a uh, Philadelphia musician oh. based primarily in Philadelphia who uh, played sort of the, he was sort of the kind of seen as like the mod I guess the contemporary like torchbearer of the John Fahey tradition he he played a lot of his tunes and did them in his way and did it with even more conviction, I would say, and more intensity So than, he, than John Fahey okay. somehow. And so his legacy is strong, and people really look up to him, even though he was a contemporary guy. Huh. He's kind of like a giant in the in, in this stuff. Um, and so I heard him first, and then worked backwards. Okay. And I was already into, you know, like, some bluegrass and old folk music and blues before that. I heard Charlie Patton, I think, before Jack Rose, but... He's the one who made me go back and like listen to other guitar players and get really nerdy about it yeah. <laughs> and start to obsess. Yeah, and I I taught myself in open tunings, so that's sort of like one thing that's very different about fingerstyle guitar from a lot of other early American music, which is in standard, you know, E A D, G B E. The tunings I use are like 
open C major, open D minor, skip James's tuning, open G, stuff like that. And for me as a beginner, it was really easy to learn through open tunings. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, why do you think the music was written that way? With open tunings? Well, the I think it might have something to do with slide guitar because because you Hawaiian have one music, just like stick, yeah, that's just like, exactly, yeah. yeah you can and do blues. one shape with it, totally, kind of, <laughs> and then kind of move it around. Yeah, I think that those tunings, I think that because like you know the the Hawaiian music where they started putting their guitars on their lap, and I yeah. have I'll play some of that too. Um, yeah, that was that became huge, and that integrated with American country music and blues music is that playing on your lap and in order to do that you play an open d or open g almost yeah. exclusively so then i think people just put that into their normal guitar right. playing and stuff like skip james is one of the early people who used open tunings he uses open d minor which is like haunting and we i have a tune i'll play later in open d minor but mm. yeah that's that's sort of i think why people did it because it started with that slide guitar it also seems to work really well with the ragtime tradition because like does, yeah my impression of ragtime with my like limited experience playing it on piano and then like you know listening to you and chris right. is that it's um is that it's chords mm -hmm. it's it's uh rhythmic chord music totally with you know a few passing tones but it's really like the music is chords right it's totally about the rhythm and the way the chords come yeah. together and shape together totally. yeah so yeah. it's not necessarily like it doesn't necessarily matter, you know, whether the melody is going ba ba do ba da da or do da da do da da. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. as long as it's going do 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 or doing some sort of hemial uh, over a chord structure, and right. that's sort of what it's about. Yeah, that seems like it lends itself really well to those open tunings. Where it does, yeah, yeah, because you have, you know, the the way you play chords and open tunings is by barring the frets, so it creates this giant loud punch that yeah. is really you know, really good for ragtime. And it allows you to stay on the one chord without doing any chord shapes. Yeah. You know, and then just like do the four and the five and you, and you have the two, the whole structure of the turnarounds, the six, two, five, one, you know, those turnarounds and stuff is right there in front of you, almost like a piano. Cause the frets, yeah. are, the frets are laid out linearly. So for someone with no theory background, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, like, totally. That's easy enough to figure out. So, yeah. I also like how it, it seems to lend itself to, it's funny, like, harmonic expectation. Um, it, there's the theory behind it, but then there's also the sort of social expectations that are, they come from how people play their instrument uh, when they when they don't necessarily know, like, music theory. Like, right. like how the instrument is set up. Totally. And, like... There's this whole other set of... I hear this in old-time music all the time. It's like sometimes it fits with Western music theory, and sometimes it seems like the harmonic expectation and how chords are used yeah. is based on just what makes sense yeah. on the instrument, and then they set up their own like um, their own grammar, if right. you will. Yeah, and they so adapt. Like, yeah. I hear in like American primitive guitar especially, right. there's all of these chord progressions that are really chromatic right and, and not in like a jazz way yeah and they like because you're sometimes only doing just the bass string right and and like the chord changes are so 
like micro you're doing so many tiny different chord changes because you're mostly just like going half steps within a chord yeah like changing like yeah so it's really uh uh, you kind of unknowingly. I played stuff way beyond my theory knowledge uh-huh. <laughs> before I knew what was going on. Yeah. Because like what you're doing ends up being accidentally complex as a as a beginner. Because you're like like yeah, you end up doing just by going a half step down. Right. You know, you're like changing the the yeah. Mm. It's really funny. It's a funny way to learn. I I really think open tunings could be applied to beginners more because of how intuitive it was for me. But it, it has been really difficult transitioning into standard tuning, though, and getting understanding. Uh-huh. Theory. Yeah, after starting from like a crude place, for sure. It seems like there's a whole standard tuning like tradition, too, of this yeah, music. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the open tuning thing is, I would say, almost totally John Fahey. Like, he's the guy who he would intentionally go flat. So mm. that would be hard for people to learn his tunes, and he Whoa. Yeah, he would wow. he was always like doing weird stuff to to sound different. Like he never wanted his guitar playing to sound like anybody else's. So he would, if a tune was in C, it would be a little flat. Yeah, and he would uh, do these weird tunings that he would make up his own. So, I mean, other people in his era, his contemporaries started doing that too, and and just you know, changing one or two strings inside an open chord uh, to just make your own tunings. And then that allows you to compose in a way that sounds totally original because, right. you know, you've never heard that tuning before. So. Interesting. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so West Coast Blues, Blind... Yeah, Blind Blake. Um, Blind Blake. Cool, so, yeah. That's, that's what you just played. That's what Tell we played. Blind Blake. So Blind Blake is the man. He's kind of, to me, the best guitar player ever, at least in terms of the syncopation. His, like rhythm and melody together is flawless and like i've never heard anything like it to this day um i've only heard one track and it was that tune the original recording and i was like this is super cool it's insane he's because yeah i don't know I, i i don't even the way i play his material is influenced by people who came much later yeah so i don't know his finger patterns i don't think he used picks okay. i think he had just a thumb pick and then up stroked with with these two fingers i'm pretty sure but yeah it's crazy it's crazy music he was um he was born in virginia um and recorded a lot in chicago and i have a feeling that he it's really a mystery to me how he got so good because that kind of music didn't exist yet he's one of those people that just like made a kind of music yeah <laughs> that's like okay uh, <laughs> i don't understand that but he must have just heard ragtime either in person or on the radio yeah and transposed it and i bet there were probably other guitar players around him doing that too he was blind which is also crazy yeah. to me. but yeah so his story there's not a lot of information about him he kind of disappeared in the 30s because he moved back to his hometown and then there's no evidence of him existing after that so but yeah i'm i i'm fascinated he he's you could argue he's a one-trick pony because he does mostly the that that four one six two five one you know right. ragtime stuff but he's the best at it and yeah like, perfect <laughs> yeah. and on top of everything that was like musically sophisticated about what he was doing yeah He's also really funny. <laughs> like he's, he's constantly completely talking. dirty yeah. and just and political. Sometimes he has a version of that tune called "In the He's in the Jailhouse Now." That, yeah, that became you know it's an O Brother Where Art Thou yeah. stuff, and it got Jimmy Rogers recorded a clean version. But Blind Blake's is pretty hardcore, and the whole opening part is about how a, his brother was 
worked to go door to door and try to register black people to vote oh, wow. and like campaign for the right to vote. So he like, yeah, he was, uh, definitely like a really smart guy and a, a very uh, silly guy and really dirty and you know as popular in the time to sort of use innuendo all the time on that yeah. on that early blues stuff but yeah <laughs> yeah that seems like a really like <laughs> in like a repressive culture it's just right. like you get, you get a lot of mileage out of just like singing about a penis jelly roll <laughs> yeah <laughs> like my jelly, jelly roll yeah i'll hold your hand baby yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a lot of the time the only way also for them to get on the radio because like I think that w- w- like white people pretty much you know that was a whole other class of music very few record labels made black recorded black music or yeah. put out black music so like because it was associated with that raunchiness you know so maybe a lot of that maybe who knows maybe they even played that up to be to be marketable I, that wouldn't surprise me because that's like that would kind of go along with other things that were happening at that time yeah i never know what to do with that like this right. i this simultaneously you know i have like this a- appreciation for like you know my understanding of like the sexuality and black music and what that's done like for just music period yeah. but then also this kind of other kind of suspicion that there's also a fetishization yeah i think it's hand in hand like the the the, it's totally it's been hand in hand the whole 20th century the like sex cells and you know yeah over over association with that community right and it's like we can't like white folks can't do that but we're going to allow black folks to like yeah here's be sexy for us yeah and then we'll steal it totally they develop it and make it really cool yeah and then we'll claim it to be original like elvis yeah (laughs) Don't get me started on Elvis. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it should be its own episode. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah. Uh, well, blind Blake. in that, yeah, in that Blind Blake tradition, I figured I would do one more ragtime guitar piece that was in the style of piano playing. So this one's by a piano player, um, Walter Rowland. Um, and he he recorded mostly piano stuff, but um, he also he also played backup guitar and recorded I think fourteen tracks with um, this guy uh, Sonny Scott um, and this is one of those. It's called Guitar Stomp. This tune. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, not, it's just like very basic. <laughs> like you're gonna stomp on a guitar. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that stomp was a kind of was almost a style. Yeah. Like because there's a bunch of tunes that are called you know, so-and-so stomp, and they all have this really, like, circular ragtime circle of fists thing going on. So, yeah. And then the Broadway show. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, I'll do that one. Uh, So this is a really dumb joke. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is uh, Roland and Scott. Um, I think it...
That's my little whole time. That's lovely. Yeah, isn't that a lovely number? I, I, there, so it's two guitar players on the recording, and it's nothing like that. I transposed it to be a, a solo tune, but they do. They're sort of one of them's doing rhythm and one of them's doing lead, and then they'll go back and forth. It's oh. really cool. Yeah. So you're working double there. That's great. I am working double. Yeah. Um, Good arrangement. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That. I. So he does it in D, and it's. I can do like a second of it, but it's way harder. Like, yeah, that sort of like slide in. But yeah, so that's I don't know. I think that's further illustrative of like clearly they were emulate. That's sort of how they were able to build the style is by emulating stride piano. Yeah, yeah. It it, it seems like I can't tell if it's more work or less work. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, you know, <laughs> than, 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 the, than the piano playing. Yeah. Well, as a guitar player, I just think it's way harder to play piano. <laughs> I've sat down with that stuff. I don't get it. You have to keep your left hand moving constantly, right? Going back and forth. Yeah, like, I did a tiny little bit of stride, but I never like it was always from reading, you know, Scott Joplin music. Right. You know, so right. I never actually got to like develop it as a a thing that I that I would do by ear. Right. You know, or yeah. improvise with. It's crazy. It's like it's I, crazy. although it's like anything, you know, like fiddling like bowing or like claw hammer there's a rhythmic drive that is underlying any melodic changes that if you understand how to tap into that you can just have it going it's the way I, it's the way i do the thumb thing i have yeah. that going like a robot so i don't have to ever yeah. think about it and then <clears throat> the only thing you think about is where the melody is going yeah i think the crazy thing to me is just like the left hand accuracy you know right just having that much muscle that much the, that small of a target yes like i was watching multiple targets yeah. and it's, like if you watch fats waller like oh my god <laughs> his whole body is the tune though that's and the, the first thing. time i like ever heard was it art tatum yeah I don't they're, know, just, art tatum. they're just doing like the stride piano that it's like oh right of course it must be like extremely exhausting like yeah. it's right. just the fastest thing i've ever heard and the right hand's just going basically yeah. playing a, a glissando but on purpose yeah, you know yeah. without sliding you know <laughs> yeah. just like, like the right it's just like ah, it makes me sick yeah and the, i think a lot of it too like some of the guitar players talk about how they had to learn how to do both parts and sing so they could make money on the street yeah like Brian blake would play solo for dancers and parties and yeah. he, you know he had to be as compelling of an act as a live band i yeah. think of that the, i think of myself the same way when i when i play i try to like that drives me to fill up the whole spectrum of sound as yeah. as opposed to just either playing and singing. I'm not right. really doing that. So it's like, you know, mm. you, you feel like you should take on the full band in the way you play. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. It's <laughs> um, great. Yeah. Well, what about Elizabeth Cotton? Yes. So this lady's fascinating to me. She, um, she's part of, what you might call the Piedmont blues style, which is what evolved out of ragtime guitar. So that's like into the thirties and forties and a little bit in the late twenties. And it's, uh, tons of people. There's other women also than her, Etta Baker and, um, uh, what Irene Scruggs. Um, but yeah, 
Mississippi John Hurt's the first name that comes to everybody's mind when you talk about Piedmont Blues. He's like, he's also the whole basis for the way I play and, you know, the whole thumb and fingers thing. And uh, who else is in that? Sort of like Reverend Gary Davis, Blind Willie McTell, all the 30s rhythm and, you know. Um, so she, but she, what's interesting about her, she wrote most of her tunes when she was a teenager and she was born in 1893. She flipped her guitar upside down and played it backwards, left-handed, because she was lefty and didn't know how to restring her guitar. <laughs> so the way she plays is unlike the way anybody else plays. Um, so the other thing that's specific about her is she didn't really record. She like, well, until later. She, she, when she was younger and when she wrote the tunes, she went into playing in the church and like focused on being a wife and mother and kind of didn't really play after she was a teenager. And then many years later, she was uh, doing housework for the Seeger family and she got seen or was, was heard playing in a, in a room with the door shut and they sort of discovered that she was who she was and that she wrote Freight Train, which, by the way, had become a hit by other people. Yeah. So like they knew about Freight Train and they knew that it was linked to her. And so then they encouraged her to relearn how to play. And so she taught herself her own old songs and then recorded a bunch in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Yeah. Um, and That's really beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. a crazy story. She's, you know, she's like somebody who was forgotten for decades. Was her like, do you know if her experience was like just kind of going into like super stardom at least in the folk world totally you know yeah. like was that like a positive thing for yeah her? i think so was I, she just like oh my god i'm like a celebrity now. <laughs> well like, she was really it inspired she recorded in 1967 because of how much people responded positively to her she yeah. well it, so initially mike Seeger recorded her in the late 50s and that's what most people that's like what her like yeah. source recordings are and then um people loved it so much that she recorded this album called shake sugary that's her it's like so many it's like 25 tunes or something and her niece i think sings on it because her voice is so shot by the yeah. time she was old um so but yeah i think you know the whole we were talking earlier the whole folk revival thing is complicated because yeah. it was mostly white kids from the north new york or you know baltimore maryland pennsylvania driving down to the south to find blues musicians from back in the day and try to like encourage them to put out new music and perform again and, and return to, to the starlight. So she, she was part of that movement. So was Mississippi John Hurt, Skip James, um, Malvina Reynolds, a lot of these people who were helped later by younger audiences being, yeah. being into folk music. Hmm. She did an episode of Rainbow Quest, Pete Seeger's show, <laughs> where she talks all, yeah, she tells her whole life story. It's cool. Um, the reason I like oh the reason she's significant to this stuff is she has tunes where she sings but she also does instrumental which is really rare for women almost no female guitar players play instrumental solo guitar so I'm not sure why that is but she was yeah I <laughs> recently someone was uh, Ian was talking about she she oh, right. posted on someone was talking about like there needs to be more singing in old time jams. You know, I think Aaron Allwell made a post, and and she was like, "Yeah." And when you have singing in old time jams, it makes space for women. And I have this oh. like simultaneous, simultaneous like response to that of like, "Yeah, you totally should." But also, right. why? Why is, is that she the case? Yeah. Designated. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like why is like 
I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I don't know. Maybe the whole, there's something, at least in our culture, there's something masculine about guitar. At least the way it's been sold to the public. Right. There's something like, I mean, it's BS because we all know there's incredible female guitar right. players. But it's but the code, it's the coding of yeah. like, yeah. Like, it's like the- men, <laughs> men do like instrumental music, especially like on guitar. And right. it's like, and then women are singers. Yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is, it must come from just the tradition of men being like performing so much more and having so much more of a platform to perform yeah. than women and, and like, yeah, I, I don't know. That solo virtuosity probably wasn't encouraged for yeah. women back then. That sort of like you can be, you can do it, you can do it. You know, like people, people like Nina Simone when she yeah. doesn't sing, it's just as powerful as when she does. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. But, but yeah. So that's what that's what's interesting to me about her. Yeah. So I'll do her. Uh, I'll do her Washington Blues, which is on that Shake Sugary. There's something about that. There's something about that. Yeah, because you're playing that with like, you're going double time with your thumb. Yeah, because you don't have like an up down motion. Yeah, and I have a feeling that's because she was, you know, her bait. That would have been her index finger doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Because her, she was doing the melody, you know, with with that finger. They call her. They called her in retrospect later. They called it cotton picking style after her last name because it's. which is specifically like you know thumb and forefinger. Um, There's something about like the uh, the the effort of like breaking the the stroke totally. and going da 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 like repetitive notes that emphasizes um, yeah. the break yeah in a really charming way <laughs> yeah like, I, she more so than a lot of those guitar players does that she is because she doesn't always have solid rhythm patterns right because she she's not relying on her thumb the way other people do yeah so so her her tendency to stray away from the like predictable path that you think she's going to go on is pretty constant like all her tunes are are pretty specific to her playing that's awesome yeah it's cool yeah um but okay, so 
in terms of yeah, the, so that's like hey guys. See, you, see you later, Jeff. <laughs> so in terms of the roots of, of 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 this kind of playing, that I think covers that. Um, one other one person I wanted to highlight. So these have all been uh, African American musicians so far, but I want to highlight one uh, white player from those days from the twenties, Sam McGee. Um, whose style continues to blow me away and is really original. Really, he played real fast um, and really complex. And <clears throat> he was kind of the a student of Dave Macon because he started playing with him in the twenties. So he gets a lot of his entertainer chops and his performance yeah. chops from Dave, from the rowdy, uh, funny uh, kind of way that Dave played. Especially over the radio, talking to people in the middle of a tune. Oh, come on. Oh, hey, folks. Like, take a yeah. break and do a bit or something. Like, so, yeah, he sort of is... I don't understand how he learned to do what he did on guitar, but, um, yeah, he stands out as well from that era. And, like, I think I mentioned earlier, he would show up on 78s with old-time string band music. Yeah. So that's, like, kind of a unique thing. Usually the other, the other times that... Fingerstyle guitar was mixed with other forms of music. It would be like ragtime or jazz. Right. So that's a pretty unique thing to hear that kind of stuff. Or like, or in like folk, you know. So that's a pretty unique thing to hear. Yeah, you're saying which one was the uh, the B side to Sally Ann? Or to Sail Away, ladies. Oh, that was. Yeah, yeah. I always get those. Buck Dancer's Choice. Buck Dancer's uh, Choice. Yeah, which we'll okay. play next is cool. is um the B side was the B side to Sail Away, ladies, which is. To me, like that's yeah. my favorite Dave Macon recording. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the first old time tunes I ever heard too. Um, and yeah, that's just sort of a an interesting piece of history that you don't th- you don't necessarily associate Appalachian music with this stuff. Yeah, but the Piedmont region is Southern Virginia down to Georgia, so it's yeah. like Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, all that area. Um, I think you're gonna join me on so- this one. Buck Dancer's Choice. Yeah. That, the name is peculiar, isn't it? Yeah. I have a feeling it has something to do with uh, them performing for dancers and like square dances or something. Yeah. And maybe that was a name he made up after, uh, you know, doing it at doing it at a gig with Dave or something. Yeah. Or perhaps it comes from some older tune that he stole and like reworked or something like that or rearranged. It doesn't seem like a buck dancing rhythm. Yeah, I've thought about that too. Yeah. It really, it, like, it, like there is sort of a. Sh- sh- I, I, that's like the second part. But yeah, it is kind of not really that great for Flash. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe at the speed he plays it at, people didn't notice. Maybe it's ironic. <laughs> yeah, or like, here's one for the Buck Dancers. Totally. Gotcha. And then he plays and everybody has to stop dancing. <laughs> that's a good summary of solo guitar music. Yeah. <laughs> An interruption in the fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, th- for, th- for, for this show, I'm right. sure it's a welcome interruption because I have old time fiddlers almost every week. Right. <laughs> so this is great. Nice. <laughs> almost never have a stylistic interruption featured. Yeah. Nice. Right. Um, well, yeah. Let's do, so let's do Buck Dancer's Choice. Uh,
Yeah. I'm a buck dancer and buck I choose dancer. that tune. <laughs> I choose it. Yeah, I think that's like, that's the best example of, to me, just everything about this, about mm. the fingerstyle guitar thing that's so great. That tune's got it all. It's like something you can do with a whole string band. There's people who have done that with Fiddler, that tune with Fiddlers yeah. and stuff, so. I saw that uh, Bruce Molsky does it. Oh, really? Not on fiddle, just solo guitar. Wait, yeah. like finger-picking way? Yeah. Interesting. I've yeah. never seen him do that kind of guitar. I yeah. know he's a multi-talented dude, though. I searched it on Spotify, and it's on there. It said his name. Nice. I'm assuming it's him. Yeah, there's like uh, uh, John Fahey, who we'll talk about more, um, is like his version of that. I, I stole that little... So Sam's does sort of... Um, and I do... Which I got, yeah. from, I got that from Fahey. Um, yeah, that's his, a really pretty part of it. I know. I like the way he changed the melody. Yeah, yeah. I uh, his recording of it's really cool. He does his own outro as well, and there's a buck dancer on the recording. Oh, cool. Somebody doing like the flat footing, but yeah, that one's really cool, and it's endured a long time. Yeah, <laughs> 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 um, that's all the that's all the like early you know finger picking ragtime stuff I have. The one tune I was going to do on the Weisenborn guitar while uh, I have it here um, is called Soft Steel Piston. Uh, Sylvester Weaver, he is a really unique story too. He recorded what is known as the first instrumental country blues music. Mm. So like before, you know, in that 20s era, before they were referring to stuff as country blues or before those like genres existed, he was transposing just like the ragtime guys where he was transposing songs to uh finger style and yeah yeah doing his thing with a slide mostly but he also did you know finger picking guitar and i believe he may have played piano as well mm. um but the yeah the, so the weisenborn guitar has a really cool story it is based um for the listeners who can't see it it's a it's all one chunk of wood as opposed to being a neck and a body yeah. And it sort of it's it sort of has a it has a hollow neck and a raised huh. nut so that the strings are off the fingerboard, which allows you to slide a lot more easily. It's basically like the the predecessor to the dobro, which totally outshone it in popularity and then replaced right. it. Um, and people didn't really play these anymore because they were seen as like kind of relics of like Hawaiian, oh. Hawaiian folk music and stuff. Uh, yeah, because this doesn't have any metal on it, other than obviously the strings and the, right. and the the gear. But there's no like yeah. resonator. On no. It. Yeah. And the resonator sound of the dobro is so specific yes. and like totally defines the whole like thing. But but Hawaiian slide guitar is its own incredible art form. They were totally shredding on crazy melodies before yeah. it even before blues like recordings even happened. So like so much of the country, the early country sound, that Hank Williams sound with the pedal steel yeah. is just Hawaiian music. Like so many of the of the emotional expressions that they do yeah. are 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 uh, very much like the sound of Hawaiian music. Um, and I don't know if people were doing lap guitar in America at the same time, and it's just a coincidence, or if they got the whole bottleneck on the lap idea from Hawaiians. When when was the Hawaiian statehood? Hawaiian statehood was, oof, I think, eighteen late 1890s. Late 1890s. Yeah, maybe a little earlier. It could have been like 1880s. Huh. But I think it's like, it's right at the turn of the century. In the, in the 30s, ha, ha, there was like the whole Hawaiian music boom. 
right. of like Hawaiian music, Hawaiian jazz right. fusion bands, and like rag Hawaiian raggy music, and like um, the but the folk music to me is is so insane because it's so unique and unlike anything else in the world. It's yeah. kind of like Indian music in that it sounds like nothing else. Because yeah. the the scales that i would i would do an example if i could even touch that stuff yeah <laughs> the scales they do are really weird and they do all these uh choices of melody that are not the way our ears would like to hear things yes. you know and it's really strange and also the singing is really specific um, but yeah i'll do this sylvester weaver tune uh soft steel piston yeah soft so steel I, piston. I gotta oh yeah you, to... can, you can play on this one uh, he was a in Kentucky. So I can count this one up. Like one, two, three, four, one. Yeah, you know, those uh, uh, Hawaiian potatoes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, taro or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he. I. I really w- am curious as to like what he, what to what level he was listening to Hawaiian music and what level he yeah. got. I wonder if that's why he started doing the slide thing. He used a bottleneck, but and I have this like you know steel bar that's been adapted over the decades yeah just to clarify for those people who aren't familiar like bottleneck is like a bottle was it originally literally a bottleneck bottleneck, yeah yeah and yeah they would put it put your finger in it there's actually still slide with yeah yeah there's actually still something i like about that's a very specific because it's glass right like the glass slides there's you know there's metal slide sound glass and bronze and they all sound totally different yeah like glass slide is crazy and has its own it's it's definitely the most ring ringy yeah and then brass is more muted and then metal is like in the middle yeah. which is why i like it but yeah that um, screwdriver sound or bottleneck sound yeah. is very specific <laughs> <laughs> and like a lot of that early music they didn't have you know slides that were made to be slid like that yeah. like we do now um so yeah this is a soft steel piston Thank you. 
<laughs> soft steel piston. Yeah, soft steel piston. Beautiful. Everywhere we go, when I like, I do that um, tune with my band, the Levy Toppers, and everywhere we go, that one like resonates more like so much. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what it is. I think slide guitar is just so underdone now yeah. and so specifically the, the, the same when yes. it is done um there's something weird about seeing an acoustic slide guitar i think the sound of it's very unfamiliar yeah because we don't really make it anymore yeah <laughs> yeah where'd you find that one uh that i got on craigslist there's a company what is their name anderwood i think anderwood acoustics they make high-end replicas of weisenborns the, the style yeah. is originally called weisenborn guitar after the guy who Started manufacturing them based uh, on Hawaiian guitars. Gotcha. Guy, he was a German guy, um, but uh, yeah, there's there's people who make replicas, and this is by mine's by a company called Luna, um, and yeah, I just found it on Craigslist, mm. kind of when I was getting into this stuff. Um, it's a definitely an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, it, it's it's like a strange, fun house shape mirror of version of a, just a normal <laughs> yeah. acoustic guitar. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the I, I don't I, there's a chance that. Um, he was playing on a on a guitar that had a hollow neck and was huh. one piece of wood. Like it's possible that he just modified a guitar. A lot of American people did that. Yeah. But they they were manufacturing them. So yeah, I, I often wonder when I listen to that tape if it is on Weisenborn actually. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. In terms of like timeline wise. Yeah. John Fahey. Yeah. The center, John. John <laughs> to a. me, to me, I, people will debate me this forever, but to me, he is the most important guitar player of like any, uh, you know, in terms of like finger picking stuff. He's the center of it, um, and even though he didn't start it, he was later. He started recording in the late fifties through the seventies. He did this. He did the finger style stuff, and then he got way more into like art music and alternative music and started doing like noise and like experimental yeah. yeah was he was he important because he spread stuff around or is he important because what he added to like the technique and the writing of yeah, the music? all of the above all of the above okay. all of the yeah. above literally he so his story is crazy his he started a, a record label called tacoma records um based on his hometown of tacoma park maryland um and he his story is weird. Like he, he taught himself to play. He started, he taught himself to read music and started composing when he was 14. He wrote, he wrote one of his most popular songs on the sunny side of the ocean when he was 14. Allegedly. That's what he says. He lied all the time. (laughs) It's really hard to tell. Like when he's telling the truth, his whole career is a joke. He sold his first LP was John Fahey on the, on one side and blind Joe death on the other side. Cause he was trying to get blues snobs to buy his record by That's pretending amazing. to be a blind person. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and he often would write in his liner notes, fake record reviews from people he viewed as like snobby blues elitists. He would like have it from their perspective of like, this is an authentic, like, you know, spiritual from the black community. Like interesting. Yeah. That so was he's his, like right it, from the get go. He's engaging with like, an ironic postmodernism. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's like people. People credit him as like you know early postmodernist. And interesting. He like uh, so he started the fact that he started pressing his own LPs really unique for the time. Indie yeah. labels weren't really a thing. Huh. So Tacoma Records. Um, so that's he's important there. And then stylistically, basically his deal is he was listening to Bartok and like composers of the day, but also 
early American music and weaved them all together to create these long form compositions that yeah. were meant to be played solo and played performatively to an, a, a theater audience. Steel string guitar specific, huh. uh, finger picks, everything about his style was specific to his to like what he was trying to do artistically. Was he, was he actually taking Bartok's music or was he doing what Bartok did? Form wise, taking the forms. Yeah. yeah, not melodically or anything. Just like in terms of composition, he was like, right. it matters that you start with a quiet part, peak in the middle and go right. down at the end. Like he learned composition and realized that his peers weren't really into that. His yeah. peers were into pop and he was right. like, wow, I can do this thing where I use pop music but make com- compositions. Almost, you know who's use really folk like music, that? but Right, make, yeah. right. You know who's really like that is Nina Simone. Yeah. Like she um, also, you know, would make these long form compositions but then there would be a quick moment of a rag or a quick moment of a blues song. Right. So, um, so yeah, he would, he would sometimes use you know, 30 seconds of a, of a tune, use the melody from that so that your ears experience like, oh, yes. that's familiar. Yeah. And then it'll disappear back into this right. long, strange composition. He also used dissonance, which is not in a lot of like pop, folk, was not in like yeah. folk music in the yes. 60s. People were like way more into like pleasant tones. Right. And Peter, he, Paul and Mary. Right. Yeah. That was that the Greenwich Village scene, while being very diverse in the styles is like mostly seen as like that that stuff stuck out a as lot sweet more. as possible as sweet yeah. as possible just yeah. make it as consonant and right right yeah he was completely enraged by that like he yeah. he studied charlie Patton in school who's you know probably like no i don't know if this is disputed but there's the most like from the gut delta blues musician yeah. like origins of that stuff and he very he thought modern music was totally lacking in uh, I don't know. There's no better word. Balls. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> he, he thought he thought you should play with your whole being every single time you played. Yeah. So he like, um, yeah. So he, his music is unique in a number of ways. His tunings, like I said earlier, his open tunings are weird, and um, he sort of saw himself as being removed from the community that loved his music. Like all the hippies huh. and folkies who paid to see him. He would make fun of them at his shows. He would right. get drunk and like <laughs> interact with them in ways where some people were like, yeah, that guy is kind of a jerk. Interesting. <laughs> but, you know, just indisputably to me, like the most interesting music and art of anyone, his liner notes would be pages and pages of nonsense babble from his mm-hmm. made up world, like that he had himself going as this mythical bluesman, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of, it is the music and you can play, I play some of his music as tunes to be played with yeah. fiddles or mandolins. Like, that's something I've been doing with Chris Stalnadar. Um, but, you know, in terms of like, oh, but the term, people credit him with, or sort of like associate him with this term American primitive guitar. So that, he meant, he said in an interview that primitive meaning the painting style. So when, when you say American primitive art, what you're saying is untaught. That's all the word primitive means. Yeah. So like, as opposed to formal teaching. So he considered his guitar playing American and primitive in that it was untaught, but American, but influenced by like American music. Right. So that's all he meant by it. But that has come to be, come an, an umbrella term for moody, strange, experimental guitar playing. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of like become the umbrella term now. Interesting. And there, I, I was always curious where that term came from. Yeah. It, it came from seemed, him. It always seemed a little bit like 
Appropriative, offensive, to me. Too. offensive. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and it 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 really bothered him that it, that was never explained because because it sounds like you're saying when you say American Privilege, it almost sounds like you're referring to the music of the 20s, but that's not what he means. What he meant was in the painter style. So like, yeah. Um. So it's really just like a term that he kind of said off the cuff and then became yeah. stuck to it, just like every other bullshit genre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like all the other ones, like the, yeah. the record labels assigned to this music that right. the musicians themselves didn't even necessarily use. Old time, or, yeah, for instance, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Old time, exactly. So he, uh, so he's uh, the reason I want to put him into this episode and in, into the context of the traditional music that he used. Yes, is I think that he totally reinvented the instru- the way you play the instrument, and he elevated it to concert status. Whereas opposed to classical nylon string guitars, were what you would play as a guitar player, right? For an, in a concert, he made steel strings palatable for classical mm. audiences, and he uh, just broke so many boundaries. And yeah, he's fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna do. I'm going to do one from him called The Red Pony, which is one that he wrote when he was really young, because I think that it is more exemplary of at a time when he was still really into blues. And in his later life, he called it, he called his early work Cosmic Sentimentalism. <laughs> so he kind of like, she kind of like didn't like his early work later. Yeah. Yeah, this is that Skip Jones tuning. Yeah, what, is it D, D minor? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, how about you tell the folks the strings you're doing for the guitar yeah so uh so this is a tune that he wrote uh based on skip james's tuning which is open d minor so d a d f a d yeah yeah dead (laughs) it's a regular dad as opposed to f sharp that's open d gotcha so very good yeah um and it's you know inherently has like a haunting quality to it um so yeah, I'll do his red pony from uh, I believe early '60s for a little cosmic sentimental. Yeah, a little yeah. cosmic sentimental. <laughs> Which like, what a perfect term for yeah. it. It's like, even as an insult, I like that. It's like, yeah, he's that is so, what we're he's doing. Being self-deprecating. <laughs> yeah, totally, says, oh, totally. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um.
Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so transported. Yeah. Astral projecting. That's what I think he was so good at is making yeah. you leave the room and go to this like place mm. that he is like feel the red pony energy. It's like, <laughs> like what you're doing for like and you see it you could see how there it's clearly bluesy. Yes. But you wouldn't call it blues. Yeah. You know? He does bendies with the strings to make <laughs> you feel those blues feelings, but you never feel like you're in a blues song. No. And it's always changing, and, and there's composition to it. There's a climax to it and everything. It's like, that's sort of what I think. Like, if you want to listen to him and compare it to the, the blues people, that's sort of the that's sort of the thing where you're like, okay, that's how it's different. It's, these, yep. it's He's using that in this postmodern way and making a collage, a, a sound collage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that red pony is really something. Hmm. So you're going to do one more tune. Yeah. Uh, before we do that, where do people hear more of your playing? Well, you have a lot of different <laughs> do, things yeah. going on. I stay, <laughs> I stay busy. Um, so, well, I'm in a string band with Lyle Werner and Sasha, who are, uh, Sasha Sushik, who were on this program not yeah. that long ago, called the Levy Toppers. Um, we plan to record this fall, I believe, so we're not going to be doing a whole lot before that, but look at look forward to that, which is... We have, we're on Facebook as the Levy Toppers, um, and Bandcamp is the Levy Toppers Bandcamp.com. Uh, what else? I, I have my solo stuff you can find at andymcleod.bandcamp.com. Um, and if you want to, you know, reach me about performing or working together or doing something, find me on Facebook. Um, I also play with Chris Dalnadar. We play ragtime and early American music. Dalnadar and McLeod is that project <laughs> at all the aforementioned band camps and Facebooks. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I think that's everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go get it. Go get it. It's all. Check it out. It's all linked yeah. on the thing. Just like tap until you buy Andy's buttons. music. You, <laughs> yeah, you followed links before. Yeah, <laughs> you know how this works. Tap, click, whatever your method Transport, is. Transport, just yeah. like Faye. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I think I'll do an original tune, the likes of which, you you know, there's sort of three periods, right? There's like the 20s and 30s early recording era. There's like the revival 60s, 70s era where I should mention, by the way, other than him, there's like a million people during the 60s and 70s who are really influential who played that way also on his label Tacoma. Mm. Robbie Basho, probably oh, most notably. Robbie Basho is yeah. incredible. Yeah, he's an amazing guitar player. Um so Jack Rose, who I mentioned in the beginning, he's definitely the foremost contemporary. He's, de he's deceased now. He died in 2009. Um, I moved to this neighborhood, Kensington, for, because of his legacy. He was, mm. was kind of where he was living and performing. Um, the other contemporary to check out is Daniel Bachman. He's really great, and he takes this stuff seriously and learned from Fahey Records and stuff. Uh, Isn't there a Kensington Blues? Yeah, that's Jack. That's, that's Jack, Jack dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought about playing that, but I was like, it's too, it's too recent. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. He that that tune also like perfectly summarizes being in Kensington. Oh, I feel like yeah. <laughs> for sure. it's the emotions of this town. Beautiful but troubling. So I use um, I use a partial capo. That's when everything I, when I but the first string, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, it allows you to, like, 
make your own tunings really fast. Cool. And I don't always keep them on there when I play the tune, but when when composing, it's like a shortcut. Interesting. You don't have to retune all the time. So yeah, this is called uh, Upon My Return. This is from an album I made last week. This is a good one. <laughs> I know this too. <laughs> um, cool. Thanks so much for being on the oh, show. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, Thanks dude. for having me. It's yeah. lovely. I'm so glad to, to do it. Yeah, yeah. appreciate it. Um, cool. And I hope people check out some of the names I, I brought up. Check out yeah. Liz Cotton. Listen to her. Listen to Blind Blake. Yeah. All right, this is uh, upon my return.
You can find Andy's music all over Facebook and Bandcamp. Follow the links to The Levy Toppers, Andy's solo stuff, and Dalnadara McLeod in the episode description on your podcatching device, in this episode's post on Get Up in the Cool's Facebook page, and my website, CameronDewitt.com. If you want to support Get Up in the Cool, go to my website and click the Patreon button. Then select a support level that works for you and claim your prizes like on-air shoutouts, weekly bonus tracks, access to the Get Up in the Cool tune archive, and online banjo workshops. Speaking of shoutouts, thanks to my newest Patreon supporters, C. Rand, Eric Zorn, and Mark Tomko. Also, Ashley Smythe, who recently raised her pledge amount. You guys are the best, and you... You make the not playing or talking about music parts of making this show totally worth it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Your your support really means a lot. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, friends. Come back same time next week to get up in the cool. <laughs>